And we are live with our 80th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Yeah, Seth, I almost, I almost got it. Seth, I almost got, got it. it. <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> hey, hey everybody. I, I, I don't know what it is. Ken, Ken's been doing this for 80 episodes now. For the last like three or four, he can't, he can't get his like intro together. So. Uh, we are finally back. Uh, again, I apologize for last week. You know, deciding to catch the flu was never on my list of things that I wanted to start 2020 out with, but it happened. So, yeah, we're back this week with Louie, uh, and we're going to be talking all things CERT and getting into the industry. And But we did want to catch everybody up on... Um, other stuff that's going on since it's been about a month since we've been live, right? Since we've actually had a podcast. Yeah, I think uh, it has to be at least a month, right? Yeah. But I, I mean, thanks for sticking with us. This is our, this is the start of our third year, Ken. I was thinking about that. Dang. Uh, of doing the podcast. We started, you know, in 2018. So 2019, 2020. Yep. Uh, first and foremost, uh, next week, uh, I will be in AppSec or in Cali for AppSec Cali. Uh, decided that I'd run down and actually say hi there. I'm not actually speaking again. I'm just going down to see Leaf and I, Louie, Are you going to be there? AppSec yeah, Cali? Are you guys gonna, actually planning to do? You're going to skip it. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. You know, we can convince you to go down. It's not too far from you guys. So yeah, it's close enough. But you know, prioritization, of course. Yeah, yeah, that, that's always the the issue when it comes to all the conferences that pop up is what's what's available and what's there. Um, I'm trying to think what else besides San Francisco. I'll be there in a couple of weeks or about a month as well, uh, running a workshop on secure code review. Um, in that case, in that that one's not going to be our full course. That's going to be more bring a code base and let's go ahead and hack on it and see what we can find. So actually implementing the secure code review process. Um, hey, that's everything on my end. Ken, what, what else did you want to talk about before we get jump into the show? Uh, I guess I'll tease the fact that we we planned this year on putting on uh, putting some of our that course, you know, pen to paper, and starting to uh, to get that down into a uh, uh, yeah, write it down and and maybe distribute it. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. We're gonna that's a project for this year that we want to do. We want to make a book. So. We might yep. uh, not go that route. So, um, but yeah, we got those shirts in too. So we've got it, Louis. Uh, Louis, we will be sending you a shirt as well. So we'll we'll get the uh, the address to send them to you in your size. But um, yeah, so we've got some new shirts, uh, and yeah, I don't think there's anything else other than you are feeling better. I'm super happy that you're feeling better, and uh, happy that Louis here, and we can kick off 2020. Uh, with, I mean, this is our first show of 2020, so yeah, good stuff. A continuation of the professional podcast that we host, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the last one we did was, we we're actually at this DevOps, DevSec, DevSecOptase Austin. Austin. <laughs> uh, yeah, on stage, that was a, I think we learned a couple things from that. One was that we need some higher end cameras um, and you know, we can, the audio was actually surprisingly okay. And so was the, the video, but definitely we could go with like a high, uh, higher, uh, I'd like to do it again. I think we want to do it again, but we just need, uh, to, to make sure that we bring some higher end equipment to, so it's a little bit nicer looking, but Hey, like you said, we're not the super yeah. profesh, uh, <laughs> podcast, so whatever. Anyways. So, uh, I'm going to introduce Louis, Louis Barrett from segment. Louis is the is, is a senior security engineer um, on the security incident response team. We were talking about before the podcast, like the whole trials and tribulations of um, basically the CERT team, and you know, we GitHub we've got our own CERT team, and and we'll get into all that. But yeah, it's it's not it's a, certainly not an easy thing to do. But um, yeah, Louis, say hi. We're gonna we're gonna kick it off. How's it going, folks? I'm Louis Barrett. I work as a senior security engineer at Segment, like uh, Ken mentioned. And basically my day-to-day -day consists of lots of threat hunting, making sure our logging and monitoring pipelines working as expected, and we're getting the right signal from all layers of our um, both product and application stack. Cool. 
Very cool. Yeah. This, and we're going to delve into exactly what all that means and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what it's like to work concert because it's not an easy life. It's definitely, yeah. uh, definitely a difficult job. I, I, but like I said, we were talking about it and I know the team on uh, GitHub's always busy. Um, lots of love to them as well because it's very difficult. But um, yeah, usually what we start with is sort of your origin story, your background story, how you got into uh, this field. And uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about how you, your your journey. Sure thing, guys. So um, I guess where it all started, if you want to really have this be an origin story. Um, I was born in Jamaica. I moved to the U.S. um, in the mid-90s. And when I got here, I hadn't started school yet, but an older cousin of mine had. And at his school, they had basically a program where they taught you how to build computers, install operating systems, and basically just bootstrap yourself into learning how computers worked. So he went to this program, built his computer, brought it home. But I wasn't going to school yet. So while he was at school, I'd be messing with his computer, taking it apart, and just doing, you know, God knows what, but always put it back together before he got home, right? Otherwise, there would be obvious problems. Yeah, ramifications, I'm sure. Exactly. So uh, (laughs) through that experience, I got a bit familiar with how computers worked. And this was like the MS-DOS days, Windows 3.1 days, kind of date myself there. And the following year, I ended up going to the same program, but because I had already had a bit of the experience just kind of messing around with uh, my cousin's rig for that year, um, I kind of just went for the experience of getting access to the technology, which I think is like the most important thing like in developing some of these skills, just like really access to resources. Um, following that, I'd kind of always been the kid in class who, you know, there, there was a computer issue, the teachers would come to me. Um, we were at a fairly underfunded school at the time, so we didn't exactly have the city's help with a lot of the IT issues we had. So that kind of fell on um, me to learn how like Nobel Netware worked and do some of that administration where the city wouldn't. And this was like I was probably about 12 or 13 at the time. So like that natural interest progressed into doing some um, IT consulting originally around just like help desk stuff, because, you know, that's usually your first leg into anything. Uh, IT or security related is doing user support. So I did that for one of these big box stores. So think about Best Buy or Circuit City. Uh, in this case, it was Circuit City on their FireDog team. And during that experience, I got lots of exposure to just the wildest kinds of user issues, <laughs> the weirdest malware that people would get from random websites and stuff like this. And like, you know, no, I was going to say that's super interesting, right? Like, one of my first like real gigs at like when I was in college was working on the college help desk. Right. And this is pre Wi-Fi days and everyone would come to school without like any, any sort of like, so similar stuff, right. They'd just bring in their computer. It's not working. And they, they would, they offered the help desk. It wasn't just like uh, staff. It was like any of the students had problems with their computers. They'd bring it in. Right. And I mean, so similar stuff to what you're dealing with, like you're going around, I'm sure to people's homes and, you know, you're dealing with rats nests and, you know, like yeah, mice inside computers. Yeah. Yeah. Like no more. Yeah. No more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you think of the computer as being clean, but inside those cases, oh, no, 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 no. Right. Like it, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's I don't, I don't dirty, miss that. Dirty much. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. They're definitely cool. like help me get in, get more exposure to just like different systems, different kinds of issues. And luckily at the time, uh, Circuit City actually had the program where they would let you get Microsoft certs. Oh, nice. Yeah, which was pretty rare back then. These were fairly expensive, especially for like a kid in high school at this point. Um, I didn't exactly have, you know, the means to, uh, you know, buy these vouchers and take these tests on my own at the time, you know, just basically working a summer job essentially. And I used their um, voucher request system, which for whatever reason uh, was not capped the way they thought it was. So instead of getting two vouchers, I got about six, took a bunch of certain exams. <laughs> and that basically helped me say, hey, yes, I can do this thing and prove that to somebody. Since before that, I had basically no experience on paper, despite you know messing with computers for years. Right. And Following that, troubleshooting at school. and yeah. Yeah, Exactly. But you can't really quantify that to employers. Just like another reason when I have some candidates come in for roles, I really try to like see what their real foundational experience is more so than what they have on paper, since that doesn't always come through. I do feel like there are folks such as yourself, Seth and I, 
and others watching the podcast that like now are in the position to hire people. And so the awareness is more there, but certainly like, I don't feel like when I started the awareness of, you know, this person, yeah, clearly they've spent time around computers, but it's not formalized. It was still, when I joined this field, it was still like, must have a master's degree and like, you know, oh, yeah. have like, all that experience. And you're like, uh, this is a junior role. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Like one of the reasons it was so hard early on to actually break into security since I knew um, from like the early days of circumventing certain controls in, in my school's network that this is what I wanted to be doing. But mm -hmm. these roles weren't as formalized or as available at the time. So I got into the whole IT consulting side of things. Again, just to get more exposure, um, learn different types of, types of systems, and just kind of like, you know, really fill out that knowledge. So after those vouchers, I was able to get into um, an IT consulting firm because I had cert certs at this point, you know, saying, hey, this person at least knows Windows XP or whatever it was, just as a leg in. And some of my first uh, clients that I had were like, you know, K-12 schools. So a lot of the same issues or same problems I saw working in... Um, consumer IT for a big box store, I saw similar things in K-12, so I did really well there. But I still knew that's not what I wanted to be doing long-term. Obviously, I wanted to work in security and not in just like a help desk level capacity. So I left that job and joined a reinsurance company, a multinational um, organization in this case, that was pretty lean on their IT side, so they needed a lot of help. I was actually brought in just to do one simple job, which was... Um, check if HP servers were expired in terms of their uh, barcode, whatever the thing was. Like, is this thing out of warranty or not? Okay. It's a one-week project. Um, I don't like doing things manually. They want me to go around to the server room, just like scan these things by hand. That seemed like it was kind of a waste of time. So uh, I automated it. You know, I used web, um, WMI, pulled some details back, and I was done in about two days. And I thought I did a really good job. But what I didn't realize was you're not supposed to finish a week's worth of work as a consultant in two days. So because of that, I was actually in a position where I no longer had that job technically. So, hey, you're actually done. So we have nothing more for you to do. But luckily, someone saw me do that who was in the engineering group or the infrastructure group. And it's like, wait, no, this guy just automated a week's worth of work in two days. Let's see what else you can do. So that basically led into me working on their uh, infrastructure team with like pretty much full autonomy since they had different divisions. And I was supporting their trading floor, both as a help desk analyst and also as a um, server administrator. And that's kind of how I got my, cut my um, teeth on you know, Windows internals, AD and all that stuff, which later transitioned to uh, some of the security work. So I stayed at that company for about eight years. Um, they basically let me do whatever I want, which is really good for like a young kid coming in who is really hungry and wants to touch different areas of the stack or the company. So like that was pretty much my proving ground for all my security work. And that's one of the first places that I took a security role officially um, and built out their team and also their uh, monitoring and alerting stack. I so think that's so important. Segment. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important that somebody like that we all recognize somebody that comes in and then like, you know, has, has sort of that, recognizing what you did and then also trying to, to help push um, you in that direction because there are a lot of people that are trying to like build their careers and all they need is like one person to sort of just recognize what they're doing. Um, you know, they're putting in the work, you're, 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 you're doing something. Um, obviously most people would have just done the, like the, the, the mindless job of uh, going to each individual uh, but and scanning, but um, you know, you, you automated it. So it's, I think it's important that people do recognize that kind of uh, hunger, like you said, and uh, help folks. That only takes one person. So. Exactly, and I, I, there are people who I really appreciate in my past for giving me that opportunity because, again, on paper, it wasn't as clear that I had the skill set. I didn't go to a four-year college; we couldn't afford it. So while a lot of my friends were, you know, going through these four or six year programs, getting their masters, I was, you know, working every day on various IT problems. And that's how I got my, uh, my experience. It was pretty interesting to see, like, when they graduated, kind of the difference level in our experience based on what we were exposed to, even it, while we were in the same field. So I really think it's important to um, acknowledge alternative paths into the industry because 
there is like a richness of experience you can gain um, by taking those alternative paths. We, we have this discussion quite often about the, the, the fact that there's no one true way, right? Like, and I know that a lot of people have, I, I don't know, I'd almost argue that half the people that are in the industry that I really respect probably don't even have a degree. I don't know, I've never asked them, but I know there's quite a few people, especially, I, I mean, you were around for the whole, you know, web 1.0 stuff and like anybody that could like read HTML markup was a programmer and became like <laughs> ultra rich apparently. But, but like that, that pathway into security, uh, like you said, it always kind of comes from, Hey, who do you know? Like, how did you represent your skills? Um, improving the situation that you're in right. is what is where it stems from. Right. Like, you know, I, I think back to, to my startup as well as, like just the fact that, you know, like like my parents, like you know, like they they couldn't have afforded it, like a new computer by by any stretch in in the situation that we were in, and you know, my dad doing some like he was a photographer and doing some like crappy photo work for a for a catalog, and they gave him a computer as payment, right? And that was basically it. It was like a used computer that they gave him as payment. And they brought it brought it home, and that's what I cut my teeth on, right? That's what I was using to war dial like way back in the day, right? And I was like, I'm like, I think about that now and like the amount of like technology that I have just sitting around the houses that I don't even turn on is ridiculous, yeah. right? It's oh ridiculous. God. Yeah, like, you know, the little like Raspberry Pis have more power than that computer. No, but at probably. the same time, those those opportunities and being able to say, hey, at least you were able to mess around with something. And like like you did with your cousin, right? The the pressure of you know screwing something up and then having to fix it by a certain yeah. deadline there there is oh, there yeah. is no substitute for that pressure, right? In a business sense, right? If you had had the money to just go to school and learn, like the, there's not necessarily the same sorts of deadlines or pressure there as when oh crap I just I just screwed up my cousin's computer and it's not going to work. He's going to kill me, right? That, that's a different. Yeah, like by 3 p.m. So. It kind of translates pretty directly into the pressures of working on a cert. You yeah. also have these deadlines more so come to answers than to, you know, put a thing back to normal, basically, or do a remediation. But um, yeah, I think it's usually a signal we can even test for early on is how people deal with those kinds of pressures. If they have the grit to like kind of power through it or if they'll fold and just throw their hands up in the air. Um, I think that's sort of like a really good way to measure whether or not someone can be successful in security because as we all know, like you're going to fail a bunch along the way. And if you're not comfortable with that, it will kind of hinder you um, in becoming successful. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that pivots pretty nicely into, you know, sort of the adaptation part of your job. I mean, there's, I, there has to be so much where, where you're just sort of adapting to a new threat or using some other technology that, you know, somebody might have stood up the. Well, I'm not saying a segment. I don't want to put anybody out there, but you know, <laughs> yeah, we'll say, yeah. <laughs> say a technology went out there that you weren't super familiar that was supposed to be out there, or you weren't sure that, yeah, you, yeah, you got out yeah, there. Really yeah. Definitely uh, an air of that where you kind of have to adapt daily, and that flexibility is also something that I try to um, test for when we're interviewing folks for cert, because if something is very real, I have to context switch like literally at least ten times a day. Um, this is going between um, triaging alerts that are coming in, triaging bug bounty reports to see if we have, for example, uh, that condition actually being abused at any layer of our application or systems. And also, I'm continuing to build and automate um, our processes on top of it. So basically changing those gears throughout the day can be pretty taxing. So one thing I found really to be like a good way to manage that at least is to A, cross-train your team like the other members of the third team should be able to pick up some of that either threat intelligence work, instant response work, or whatever it is, and just kind of have a balance. We could time box our work and kind of shift things between team members so that we can work efficiently. Because we, we know that we're gonna be overworked or inundated with lots of different kinds of tasks coming in. And the only way to really tackle that is to automate, delegate, and uh, pray, I guess, at that point. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's always that. Automate, delegate, and pray. <laughs> There's always a little bit of, I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of risk, right? So you, yeah, you kind of, uh, I, and that's this, we were talking about this before we 
before the podcast even started where it's like um, the reason I say that I, I, you know, really admire the cert team that we have and anybody who works in cert period, whether like whatever, whatever company is because you have the, the, the constant new stuff coming at you. You've got um, a constant daily barrage and you have to be available. Like what I was saying to you before the podcast was, you know, for me, if, if something like, let's say a bug bounty researcher, I think the example I used was a bug bounty researcher who says, here's a vulnerability that I've discovered. And maybe it's serious enough that, you know, we sort of have to, we, we look at the root cause, find anywhere else in the code paths that might be similar, give a recommended fix. And then the real work starts. Like from AppSec at that point, I just like hand it off to the cert team. And then they have to go back and figure out if this, they, they have to coordinate with, all kinds of teams, they have to be available. I mean, that's the other big thing is just you're always available. Like for me, if it's a Friday and it's six o'clock and this happens, it's like, all right, well, I've just given you all the details. Now this is where CERT continues through the weekend, working with the engineering teams and whoever else to figure out if it's been exploited, what to do, you know, who needs to be contacted if, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, if uh, if they need to be contacted. Uh, it's just... It, it's a very difficult job. So I imagine on top of the, the difficulty of finding people, it's just hard to like keep people from burnout, you know, and just, yeah, that's, that's something that I've tried to be better about in the past few months. Um, I'm used to working on very small teams. It's also how I can develop an automator's nature in that sense, because I know that if I don't have the resources as people, I have to have the resources as bots or code to kind of handle some of these problems. So to, to manage the burnout, like we do have, you know, unlimited PTO, obviously. And for the first time in my life, I actually took some weeks off in a row. This is like a new thing for me. But it also comes down to like the delegation aspect I mentioned earlier, being comfortable with the um, level that your team members are at. They can take on some of this work and you know things won't be missed. So like I'm actually in a pretty good place here at Segment in that regard that um, the people we brought on for CERT have like performed really well. So that gives me the comfort to not burn out basically at that point. Yeah. I think that's really what boils down so to if you're, having that support. It, I mean, how do you, if you're finding somebody who's like, uh, if you're, if you're say you want to find somebody who's like maybe not as experienced, but cause just going back to what you're saying before, <laughs> if you want to find somebody who's maybe not as experienced, but they have the underlying skills we talked, you and I talked a lot about before the podcast, like the having that fundamental, foundation yeah. of just like it knowledge but i mean how do you go about sort of it's i mean it sounds like adaptations one necessary thing uh you know having like a, being able to manage difficult situations but in order to delegate to people you have to trust them so how do you kind of like you know how do yeah, you so find those people what are, what are the characteristics that you would trust so there, there are a couple of things to that there's the aspect of grit how do they work through tough problems um, do they throw their hands up in the air and give up or do they kind of power through it? And if you leave someone to solve a problem, you know, how many approaches are they taking to this problem before, you know, asking for help or touching base with you? Um, and that kind of helps to show whether or not they can be autonomous. If I see that someone is basically a self-starter, I will dump every, you know, piece of information in my head into them to make sure that they're successful. So like we do basically daily brain dumps and we'll switch between like our blue team and red team context. But thinking like the attacker is a big part of also how we like, train folks for cert as I basically consider all the options of how something can be exploited or how a system can be abused and where the signals of that abuse would show up um, in various levels of our, our logging stack. So it really comes down to training your team members and more senior people being willing to share that experience and not just throwing their headphones on and going into a bubble the whole day and not uh, training up their, their comrades there, you know, because it really does benefit um, the person training them in the long run, they'll find things that you may not have found because they have a different view on some of these IOCs or indicators and also have a just different life experience that might highlight some conditions you wouldn't be aware of. Um, an example I can give is we recently were doing a threat hunt. Um, this is actually related to the whole situation with Iran right now. I don't ah. speak Arabic, but a member of my team can speak and read Arabic. And he noticed something that I never would have noticed in the way a certain string was written. Right. And it's just that kind of um, cross training and also bringing people in from more diverse backgrounds that can really help things move forward in ways that were kind of unimaginable years ago. So you're not just responding. You're 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 detecting you're yeah. you're a big trying to make. Yeah. 
So then, you know what, actually let's maybe back up then let's, let's talk about an average week. You know, what, what's an average week look like for a certain team? You know, what, what's sort of part of the, the, your day-to-day tasks and week. So like for our day-to-day, it's kind of variable, but it also depends on the level of maturity that your cert program is currently at. If you're only at the stage of like having some logs, you might be able to do minor threat hunting and generate some alerts. Once it's more mature, like our program is here, you're able to actually dedicate a uh, you know few hours a week to doing official threat hunts. So day to day is basically we'll come in, we'll look at the health of our monitoring stack, making sure that's all nominal. Uh, we've built with some resilience in place so we shouldn't have to babysit it. Basically, mm-hmm. if I'm gone for six months, it should run on its own. It shouldn't fall over. Um, and that's one part of it, like the actual DevSecOps, are we building the right systems to help us either do instant response, threat hunting, or just get a reputation on an IP or an IOC. Okay. There's the other portion of it, which is responding to incidents, things that are confirmed that come in, or we'll have to triage this um, using the logging stack we've built and also some open source te- um, technologies. There's the aspect of it where we have to, you know, follow up with bug crowd findings or bug bounty findings around possible issues in our application, which is also another instant response task. Um, there is a, there's review for uh, certain anti-parents we discovered through our logging and monitoring. So there's the user education portion of it. So we're mm-hmm. usually going to uh, some of our engineering users, since we are an engineering org, people are, you know, very well versed in their own technologies and things they're working with. So we typically are the ones who go to them instead of IT in this case to say, um, hey, this is a problem because of X, right? In terms okay. of like certain configuration issues or, or things along those lines. And there's also the uh, adversarial simulation. We also take that on on CERT as well because that helps us to tune our detection. So for example, like once a week for 30 or 45 minutes or so, I'll say, hey, I will run this particular attack in one or more accounts or on an endpoint, and then see how those detections play out with uh, the other members of my team. So can you detect what I just did in the network? So it's kind of a purple team type approach, but uh, still yeah, so I have detection rules. two questions from there. Sure. A couple times, uh, forgive my ignorance, a couple times you've mentioned IOC, and I'm yeah. not familiar with that term. Oh, really? Okay, great. So that's indicator of compromise. Um, in this case, okay. That means anything that we see as an, a unique string or something we can use to um, gain more context on an event or alert that came in. Say, for example, we have someone attempting to you know, brute force our web page login or something like this. An IOC in that case might be the IP address they're using. It could be the user agent. It could be the user ID um, or anything along those lines. Basically, anything that helps us to say, hey, this is the same attacker or this is a pattern we can now um, detect. Okay. Now, now that makes, okay. That totally makes sense now. Yeah. When you use the term, I was little, I just wasn't very familiar because, uh, you know, obviously my background's not, it's more in the, uh, AppSec realm. Um, the other thing is, uh, cause, cause my, my buddy, we've had him on the podcast a couple of times, Chris, uh, he, uh, Chris Gates, he has mentioned, and we've talked, he's talked about, uh, adversarial, th- uh, threat simulate, uh, simulations and, um, or attack scenarios. And, uh, uh, I'm curious, like what, what, what kind of makes those successful? Like, how do you run, what, what are the kind of the main things that you can, you, you should do to make that seem like realistic and actually helpful? I mean, is there a point at which it's too subtle of an attack oh, yeah. that it becomes oh, like right. hard to sort of even for, I mean, I, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, what, there's what, two what, ways um, that can be approached. Um, there's kind of a black box and white box method to it. Um, in the black box approach, you, know, you can think of a pen test or someone coming in doing this to see if a response team will actually detect this condition and respond. Um, that's not what we're doing here. Um, what okay. we're actually doing in this case is um, kind of the white box method saying, I know what uh, I should see when I run these commands or use these tools against our, um, our services or endpoints. Um, and do we actually see that in the logs and do we get alerts generated for that? So it's basically fine tuning our system through the use of typical attacker methods. And that's why it's more successful typically than um, just blindly attacking a system and hoping that the response teams um, see this come up. Okay. Yeah. You're sort of just making sure. Or whatever and translate that into detection rules, for example. And Paku, if you're not familiar, is an AWS uh, attack simulation tool. Okay. Yeah. So, so that 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 actually dovetails into a question that one of the listeners listeners had that uh, Ken Toller had. Um, 
around creating IOCs for application-specific attacks instead of stuff that's necessarily mapped to attack. Is that what you're doing to customize that? Is, you know, is. running like Burp Suite or whatever else to actually see? So or not running Burp per se. Like I said, do like a lot of custom tooling. Um, just faster okay. and easier for me in this case, since I don't typically need the bell, okay. whistle, the burp, or a zap to accomplish some of these things. But the indicators that we would be using in this case are related to the level of the stack that we are um, testing against. So if the, okay. the web application we're testing and not, for example, the AWS management layer, um, the IOCs there could be the user ID of the person logging in. They could be the location they're logging in from. Um, the rate at which uh, these commands are being executed, and basically anything that helps us at that layer seven um, to determine that this is the same person, right? And if we were in an endpoint, for example, we could drop a binary on there and see if this is showing up in the um, endpoint data recorder logs. So it basically is tuned depending on what layer of the stack we're looking at this from. Cool. I, I mean, that that makes sense from a, if both from an engineering perspective and a protection perspe perspective, uh, solely for, solely, you know, hey, I want to respond to something. You got to be in that specific mm -hmm. layer and you want to know the attacks that are there. Right. I, that's always been one of the difficult things that we fought from an applications perspective is all of these tools. I mean, there's more in the application space nowadays or higher up in the stack, but most of the traditional security tools were all, hey, you know, yeah. on the lower layers, right? I mean, you've problem, got a firewall. Right? It's a real problem. Yeah. And then, and then they, they encrypt all the HTTPS traffic. And guess what? Your WAF goes out the window because you're sniffing, right? You know, you don't have that that certificate or whatever else. Like we've seen these problems happen again and again. So it sounds like you guys specifically have solved this more at the hey, we're targeting specific layers. Yeah. Um, so how much of that? So it sounds like that goes hand in hand with the threats threat hunting stuff that you it do does. as well. So we have so, like different methodologies yeah. depending on the layer of the stack that we're doing the hunt in. And obviously um, some of these layers will um, kind of get tied together because certain attacks will show up on multiple layers, obviously. So say something runs on a user workstation, we might see this um, in our NetFlow logs, we'll see it in our EDR logs, we'll see it in our DNS logs, for example. And being able to tie those three unique signals together into um, one event or one indicator is basically what our threat hunting process helps us to define so we can turn those into alerts later on. Okay. And EDR is, uh, that's endpoint detection and response or? Yeah, or endpoint data recorder, whichever they want to use acronym. Okay, data. <laughs> you know. I just want to make sure I clarify. Network, uh, process and like disk reads and writes, like a number of tools in that category. Does uh, it's like uh, Carbon Black and uh, yeah. OS Query, those kind of fall under that? Carbon Black, OS Query, uh, Microsoft Sysmon is another good one in that category. Yeah, basically anything gives us visibility on that endpoint level where we can know what executed, when executed, did they make any network connections, uh, did it resolve any uh, DNS address names that we should be concerned about, stuff like this. Yeah, I remember uh, going back to Chris, he was saying that OS Query can be great, but it can also be very like technically difficult Mm -hmm. um to implement um that again i know so little about all of this but uh uh yeah i, I just know that I, I guess if you're if you run os query it, it you like it does require a lot of tuning and customization to be useful from yeah. at least from a few years ago i think that's what he was saying yeah, i mean that's so. typical of any um tool in that category you need to know what you what you're looking for and at minimum what you don't want to capture in this case because that's where things tend to get tricky Okay. Like, it's of like Microsoft systems, for example, there are a number of folders that are just super noisy and you'd never actually get the proper um, context from your logs unless these are heavily filtered. But at this point, and kind of speaking on the paved road um, section of security right now, a lot of people have put out rule sets for OS Query, um, for Carbon Black Detect, and also for Sysmon. They're like really good baselines for moving forward. So that's something where I don't see as much of a barrier to entry anymore because people have kind of put these things together for us and made it a bit easier. Interesting. I mean, so wow. it sounds like massive amounts of data, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> right. So I'm pretty sure, like, so talk a little bit about how you're actually managing everything that's coming in. Like, you don't necessarily have to give specifics on tooling or whatever else, but how, what what is the approach that you take to, you know, pulling this all in and actually running some sort of queries against it, like an elk stack style, hey, we got a database, we got to be able to alert on it, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so the kind of first thing that I put in place here was our modern stack. This is Elk, but not your traditional Elk in the sense that 
Her traditional elk would be, you know, Elasticsearch for search, uh, log stash deliver the logs into Elasticsearch, and then Kibana for visualization and kind of getting some uh, insight out of that data. So what we did differently in this case is we aren't using Logstash, we're using Kinesis. And we have a number of Lambda workers that will pull from numerous sources, both like uh, third-party APIs, our own internal logs, um, and endpoint logs, and basically dump these onto a flat Elasticsearch database so we can search across everything. So if we have an IP address that we're concerned about, we can search for this in you know, our two-factor logs or SSO logs, our endpoint logs and our NetFlow logs to see if there's any um, correlation there at all. So it's really useful in kind of stitching together uh, different layers of the, the, the stack and seeing what's going on there. Okay. And like, so what sort of recommendations do you give to your application teams then on, hey, this is the data that we need, um, right? Like I, I know you're, you're looking for indicators and you've got, you know, specific, uh, processes for testing out like something like SQL injection. Hey, if it yeah. shows up in the log in this in this format, are you just telling your app your dev teams send us everything? Or how is it that you like how do you interact with them in that case? Like like we run into this all the time that hey, we've got like operational logs and all they want to give us is these this user logged in, this user logged out. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like so, so security events versus operational. Yeah. As a as like a cert person, I kind of feel like I'd want to see everything. Exactly. Uh, exactly. That's what we want to do. Yeah. So we're actually really lucky here in the sense that our engineering, we're an engineering organization. So as long as you have a justified reason for needing something that's pragmatic, you usually don't get much pushback, right? Okay. Uh, I basically explain to folks what we can't do if we don't have that information and what the repercussions of not having that information would be. And they're usually pretty forthcoming with adding either additional log context to our own internal logs or providing a means to get that context through some other system. So in our case, they're actually pretty forthcoming with adding features. Um, say I want to know uh, when new users have logged in for a new IP, for example. That's data they have in the app anyway, so they just surface that in logs so CERT can now consume that in the same log source that we were pulling in um, originally, just with a new field, for example. So instead okay. of having to go build some tooling there to say, hey, um, let's count the last 30 IPs, is this a new one? They do that, do that for us in app, so we don't do that, some of that processing. So there is that back and forth um, to add security context to uh, any logs that the engineering site controls. And so far, it's worked out pretty well. Cool. See, so, yeah, and I, I think, uh, so just on the flip side, I do see organizations that instead of doing what you're saying, right, and actually going back and getting it put into the logs from the engineering org, they have a tendency to push it like into Splunk and mm -hmm. then do manipulation of the logs and do counts and things like that to actually pull it out, um, which which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you don't have that interaction with the backend team. So, I, yeah, I, I was just wondering there because it's it, you know yeah, it's, it's definitely a it, a, it comes up. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely. We'll comes up. But I typically like to have those things as close to the source that's generating the alert as possible. Some of that context because the more processing that occurs um, away from that source, the less likely that is to be accurate and actionable in my opinion. So that's something that I try to push as close down into the application as possible. That way, if we have to have someone else look at some of this data, they don't have to know how Splunk or Elasticsearch works. They can even look at the raw log source and say, hey, this looks suspicious. Um, and that mm -hmm. way we can all be a bit better at security. Cool. Yeah, one of the questions so, Ken Toller had was, I don't know if you wanted to get into it, but uh, basically he was asking, you know, if someone says, I want to do, I want to do cert well, I'll rephrase <laughs> it because he, he but he, so we want to do cert well. Um, I don't know what I'm looking for. You know, like how do you sort of build, I know that that's, because that, let's talk just about applications. Like, wh like, what are some of the the, the things that are, are sort of like easy signatures? Just oh, like bare basics. You don't know anything, but you're going to go in and you're going to build some some signatures that are like you know maybe a little bit scary. Are you looking for like 500 internal server error stack traces? Are you looking for like a certain you know SQL? Yeah, there, there are a number of in the, for sure. What's that? There are a number of things. Like also, obviously, the error. Error counts are, are one of them. But if you have any uh, log source that there's unknown data there and you want to basically get a signal out of this, 
one of the first things I do is visualize this data like in a, in a few different ways to see kind of how the um, parameters or the data comms bubble up in terms of do they group on certain columns? Can we see that this one thing is an anomaly because you have a spike in count or if you have user agents decrement, decrementing instead of increasing for application security, for example, um, that's a clear sign that you probably have some using a proxy or, or some bot or some you know skid who's hard-coded the user agent. Um, just like little things like this that help you to detect, A, is it a human being? Is it something that is um, impossible for a human at, with a mouse and a keyboard to do? Uh, <laughs> that helps to you know, really expedite some of that the rule creation for these unknown sources. Because anytime we onboard a new log source, there is about a few, a couple of weeks at least, where we're visualizing this, getting familiar with that data. What's what does normal look like in that data set, and then reversing that to find any kind of anomalies that would exist there, and um, tuning rules based on those. So there are a few basics. Yeah, counts, errors. Obviously, if you get five hundred, someone's probably trying something funny with your application, unless you have an unstable application. Um, yeah, so there there are a few things you can do, but. It does come down to basics, grouping on counts, grouping on various columns, and seeing how that data changes, and making note of that as you build your rules. When you say visualize the data, are you using, because you had mentioned uh, Kibana, um, is that sort of what you mean? It's like building the visual graphs to sort of like, yeah. detect, so just visually you can see sort of, So that? Tableau or Kibana or anything else, basically any tool that helps you visually uh, consolidate your log data into something meaningful. Because as human beings, I feel like we're much, it's much easier for us to see patterns uh, when they're visualized and just in a, in a raw tabular form. Um, sure, people can do it from a tabular form, but trust me, it's a lot easier when you have this visualized and you know color-coded in front of you. I do trust you because I don't know anything about this stuff, so I'm <laughs> fascinated in learning today. It's super awesome. Love it. Um, we had another question, which was uh, did, if you had any experience using Chaos Search. Chaos Search. I haven't, but I would... Mm. Is there any uh, info you have about that? I have none. I, I don't know anything about chaos search until today. I'd never heard of it. Again, I'm learning a lot today. So that's the first time uh, I've heard of this one. But um, on chaos testing, that is one of the ways we verify that our uh, infrastructure will stand the test of time. Basically, you know, like pulling out various components and seeing how it fails, and whether or not we can be resilient to those failures. Because the worst thing you can have in like a logging system is to not have your logs arrive, for example. Mm-hmm. Ah, so I guess this is using S3 instead of mm-hmm. as the storage versus um, uh, versus using like uh, Elasticsearch uh, okay. or something like that. Yeah, I, I ran into issues with uh, using S3 as a data backend for our larger um, log sources because I like to visualize, for example, a year's worth of data at once. And doing that via S3 can be fairly tedious, especially if you have a number of different keys that has to search across and kind of stitch those all together in a single view. So... I found uh, Elasticsearch to be really performant in that area, and that's basically why we went with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, that that does make sense. It's it's like an in-memory type. Yeah. I mean, it's meant to perform and be optimized, um, whereas S3 is just sort of like a persistent storage. So, oh, it's, wait, so this is Elasticsearch compatible? Chaos search? I'll look into it in any case, because I'm always looking for new tools and things to make my job easier, basically. So if this is going to do that, I'll... Definitely check it out. So we'll have to have a follow up to talk about it. Yeah, because yeah. I don't know. Again, don't know anything about this. It's super interesting. Do you deal with account takeover, uh, uh, ATOs, account, account takeover op- operations, I think is what it's called, oh, or something yeah. like that? Yeah. So we get attempts for that a lot. Um, when I mentioned the new login location detection, for example, it's one of the checks for this. Um, oh. For example, if someone hasn't logged in from that IP before, uh, they will actually get a warning prior to logging in. They won't be able to directly log into this account. There'll be a waiting period, for example. And since we do have that signal in our logs that was added by our engineers, that helps us on cert to say, hey, is this um, someone trying to take over an account? How often are we seeing this IP across other users, for example? Do we have um, one IP getting tied to 60 people within the last 20 minutes, for example, is a good signal for something like this. So we, we do see those types of attempts. I think any company who has a SaaS tool um, will face that problem at some point. And for companies who are making SaaS tools, if you're making a tool and you don't include some sort of audit logging in your tool, you're doing it wrong. And there are already a few who I see doing this. Let's, let's, yeah. let's rewind a little bit. If you're building a new tool and you're not 
including audit logging. I don't care what the tool is. If it's a set, <laughs> you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, anything that's holding uh, data for either your employees or their customers, and it's a SaaS tool that does not provide any inbuilt logging or auditing, you are 100% doing it wrong because those that accounts can easily be taken over and you would never know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, and this is, this. I had another question here, which was like, uh, I get the sense, and I don't know how accurate this this statement is, that you know, two factor auth honestly would. I get the sense, anyways, that oftentimes it would prevent these issues, but I'm not sure how accurate that is, or if it's uh, if, if if it's like a hey, no, it's a little bit more fine tuned than that. Like it's SMS to FA versus like uh, you know, and like authenticator or duo or something like that, you know, there's a big difference there. I, I honestly don't know. Like if, that, if that's, yeah, a I don't think statement. there's a big difference in which 2FA um, mechanism they're using. People are always talking about how bad SMS for 2FA is, but how often are people really getting SIM swapped, right? How often mm-hmm. is that really happening? I think it's a bit of like the fear mongering aspect of it from maybe some of our companies who offer two factor. I'm not going to say which, but <laughs> Any solution that gives you a second factor is better than nothing, obviously, and will help to you know kind of stymie the ATO attempts on most applications. It, it so it is, yeah, it is like something to to sort of preach still. Like. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I'd, much. I'd almost think the SMS, like the SMS stuff, right? Like, yeah, if you're being targeted, right? If you if you have a fear that you're being targeted specifically for account takeover then maybe that's one that you want to avoid. But in general, yeah, exactly what you're saying. I, I think I, I've, I've never seen anything when talking to customers or even other AppSec people that, hey, this is way worse than using Duo or something else. So, Yeah, it's yeah I mean, it happens, but I think it's a lot of your job too is figuring out, well, I don't want to like speak for you, but I, th- I would imagine a big part of your job is figuring out like what sort of attacks are we trying to prevent? Like, Exactly. Yeah. Which is sort of your, actually this came up cause my, uh, my mother, I bought her, uh, some nest stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, and we were talking about, um, I was like, just enable two factor off because like, I'm, I'm serious. It's a privacy issue. If someone guesses your, I'm sure weak password that you use <laughs> on every account, like you're going to have an issue. <laughs> and so she's like, are you, you know, do you think it's that? I'm like, yeah, yeah. But then she was like, well, what do I do with these recovery codes? And I was like, you know what? Just print them out. Put them out and put it in a file cap filing cabinet. That's not your risk profile is not like you're worried about somebody breaking into your house. And that's like on a very, very small scale, I imagine, considerations that go into your job. Like what are you know, like, what are we really trying to prevent here? Who are we yeah. I mean, so I've kind of broken ours into a few categories. Like there's the aspect of people obviously directly trying to do us harm, attacking us directly, or you know, probing our resources directly. There are those who want to target our customers because they're using our platform. They can detect they're using our platform. And then people obviously using our platform for things like e- various forms of e-crime, right? So um, those are kind of the buckets I put our threats in. And then there are different detections we have across e- kind of each of those lanes, um, so to speak. Ah, makes sense. So in general, how, how much time do you spend on, like, just in, yeah, in general, like how much time do you spend on, like employee, like corporate style, like monitoring versus, you know, the SaaS tool monitoring, right? Like how do you feel that that workload is? Is it pretty much 50, oh, yeah. 50 it's or it's definitely hundred percent even across the board since we okay. um, control all those log sources, we are managed those logs on cert. So daily pretty much we're doing a hunts across, uh, again, all layers of the stack. So we have our endpoint logs, NetFlow, and also like the SaaS and uh, cloud level logs. And then that's an even split we basically choose day to day. Like, where do we apply our time based on where we see the risk showing up? Okay. So pretty even split. That, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's that's good to know, right? Like, I, I always wonder that, right? You'd have, to, you'd have to do it based on risk, obviously, right? So some of the bigger companies, I almost feel like they they have a tendency to feel like they're a bigger target than they necessarily are. Yeah. You have companies that think that they're like, Oh, we're, you know, we're a startup. Everybody's after us. And you know, our little 10 person office, people are targeting yeah. us like nation states. <laughs> and you're like, really? No, dude, like, actually, you, that's... you have financial data in the cloud and you're a little like, no one cares about your 10 person. Like, it's math, the opportunity you know, like, from what I've seen. Less it's target, funny you mentioned that. Like, 
for sure. I was just about to ask you, like, what point, like, at what size of a company, or you know, maybe it's not size. Like, at what point does it makes make sense to have a like a one person, just the first person coming in to do cert uh, related activities? So honestly, I think it's one of the first security roles any team or any company should hire for, um, mainly because while your security engineers are make base. Um, helping you have better infrastructure or your app engineers are helping your product be better. Um, you need people day one to know what's going wrong and or with either side of that. We kind of act as a mirror to all other teams to see how well um, what they're implementing is actually working. And without that signal, without that measure, you can't really uh, accurately know how well either of those teams are really doing in terms of how far your security is actually going. You can see that maybe people are getting the PRs approved at this point, but are those PRs actually introducing issues and things along those lines? So the visibility is key from day one, I think. And the sooner that companies have their head wrapped around that, the less issues they will see down the line. And the yeah, it's, to respond. It's, I mean, I know Seth, we've talked about this before. We're like, you're your first person. I, I mean, I, I can totally see the first security person being that cert role. Cause I don't, cause we've talked about this before where people are like, well, how, you know, we've been approached by startups and they're like, well, how much does it cost for an AppSec person? And like, should I get them, you know, right now? And you're like, you've got 40 people. Don't worry about it. Like you, unless your entire business centers around that, then yeah, like may, maybe it's a consideration or maybe you just want to have a, a, a trustworthy consultant. But yeah, like your first person shouldn't be a specialist in, in one domain. Whereas like you have somebody who can, like you said, respond to, uh, and detect a variety of threats, but also that's the person who's going to classify uh, what your risk is, what what then based upon that that risk is like pertinent to implement. And and yeah, just I I, I can totally see why you say that. I do not think like uh, in, in very rare cases it makes sense for like your first person to be. Um, I say appsec, but I mean you know I guess your what would be like another specialist domain like uh, a red teamer or yeah. like a, a, like a physical pen tester tar tiger team type you know deal <laughs> yeah i see a lot yeah. of work yeah, going that route as well trying to get red teamers in uh, a little sooner than i think they should um before yeah. they even understand what resources they have to be attacked uh they're bringing in yeah. hackers so that's kind of a, a weird thing i've seen um on the on the uptick recently I have seen red teamers. I have like friends that are red teamers, and they go and they're like, "Why did what, here, you want your findings? Everything, everything is a finding here. Like literally everything. Do you just want me to put everything in a report, and that's that's the end? Yeah. Like everything here is terrible. Like you need to uh, yeah. Yeah, let's back up a bit and and actually implement some defense. So, for sure. So along those lines, what what do you feel about MSSPs? Right, like you've got a lot of startups that. Wow. Hey, 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 this is like we we have a whole like ten people listening, so just go for it, right? Say whatever you want. Yeah, um, um, I'm I'm mixed on those because at one point in my career, I thought that's actually what I wanted to do. Uh, basically, democratize our security knowledge as something that other companies could benefit from. But over the years, I've you know gotten some feedback from friends who are either working at MSSPs or work with MSSPs, and in most cases, they're not really getting the value um, out of them that they'd expect. And that comes down to you know, knowing the company, knowing the stack, right? A lot of the yeah. MSPs are like highly distributed across a number of organizations, and they never really do that deep dive that's necessary to like pull actionable signal out of any log sources people have. Or in other cases, they're only consuming alerts that have already been configured, and they're not exactly sure hey, how those configured, what the source of this is, has it been tuned, et cetera. They just respond. So I'm not really sold on them personally, but that's mainly because they don't have that close touch with, uh, with the organization that helps them be successful, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like the organizations that I've talked to about MSSPs before have always been, hey, you know what, if, if this is a stopgap for a year because you're just trying to get your, your hands around things, that's great. But the second that, like, like that whole, we're, we're digging into every point of the stack, an MSSP is not going to do that, exactly. right? Exactly. They're probably not going to dig into the application logs to look and see what happens when 2FA goes wrong. Mm -hmm. right? They're just not, because that doesn't apply across every single organization that they're dealing with. So, 
Yeah. Yes, Take like, it with a grain of salt, I guess. Right? Compliancing away your security type of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Having the same category for me. That, that's never a problem, Louis. Come on. It's fine. <laughs> right? don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, I used to work for a company that like, gave out cybersecurity insurance. So uh, that was an interesting, uh, interesting gig at that point with seeing how people will prioritize, you know, getting a security policy, which is like an insurance policy instead of a real security policy in place, more so than, um, you know, hiring a team and building out that functionality internally. And the irony is the insurance is always more expensive and doesn't actually protect you from anything real in that, in that case. Interesting. Yeah. <coughs> oh, sorry. I'm trying to phrase this question. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. Um, if you don't have the money uh, for an MSSP, I guess, yeah. um, and you want to balance your security rules out, this is a tough question. How, how would you go about doing that? That's So allocation of resources, I guess, is like the, the core question to that. If you have a limited budget, limited resources, resources in general, how do you best allocate those to um, be successful from a detection and response standpoint? Right. Uh, I've always been a big supporter of kind of four-man security. I always try to build with nothing before asking for even a, even a cent and kind of to prove that this can be done. So like I mentioned with the whole paved road aspect of things, there are a lot of tools and services out there right now that are free and open source that will get people maybe 60% of the way there. And then they'll just have to hire a person to get familiar with those tools maybe and um extract the maximum value out of them, right? So it is easier than it was maybe four or five years ago to um, do this on the cheap. Mm-hmm. So I would say like, you know, invest in open source tools, reach out to the community, see what people, folks are using in that area. Um, because yeah, it, it is tricky. Security folks are expensive, we all know this. Um, and if you wanna actually like balance that efficiently, you really will have to he- like lean heavily on automation, use open source tools, and again, reach out to experts in the community who are usually pretty open to um, discussing this type of stuff and, and best practices because they enjoy it, they're passionate about it, and they'll, they're willing to help. And because you mentioned it earlier, and you just said, talked about um, having open source resources, I'm linking to, I think you called it Paku, is that the way to say it, from Rhino Security Labs? Yeah. So that's um, like a really nice assessment tool. I don't see too many that do um, cloud stuff well. Um, I was actually taking a look in at Metasploit the other day to see what they what tools they had that were like AWS targeted. There are maybe two modules, like one to spin up an instance and one to like dump S3 buckets or something. But there weren't um, many in that area other than Paku that I saw were that really like well fleshed out. So kudos to Rhino Security. Very cool. Yeah, no, I know they put a. I remember when they released. I think it was a couple. Yeah, I think it was like a couple years ago. Um, they had put a lot of time and energy into it and. Uh, to make it a pretty good tool. So it looks like they're still, it looks like it's still, let me see. It looks like it's still apt, actively maintained. Yeah, it should be. Uh, yeah, somewhat. Interesting uh, yeah. plug here. Uh, I did a talk at AWS Community Day um, a few months ago. Um, this was another paved road talk, and this is basically a bootstrap security monitoring um, in a brand new AWS account or one that you already have some resources in. And that basically gets you up to the point where you don't need to invest millions in a uh, Splunk or a uh, or Sumo Logic, for example, and can use open source tools to get you at least like 80 or 90% of the way there um, and get some visibility built around things. Do you, are there videos or slides available for yeah, that sure. at all? Yeah, definitely. I can send you guys a link after the show if uh, you want to include those. Yeah, we can yeah. Uh, add it in the description of the um, video so people can click on it later. Cool. So I can find it. Cool, man. I feel like I've learned so much today. <laughs> I really do. It's it's awesome because we don't. I, I've always wanted. Uh, I'm super happy that we got hooked up with you through uh, through Leaf because um, we like I, I. It's yeah. I think cert is such a difficult job, and it's not one that's well understood or known. I don't feel by a lot of people, including myself. Like some, like I said, a lot of what I do is just sort of handing it off, and then they do their their wizardry on the back back end and. Um, that we either get the thumbs up or like, Oh, we're going to have to send out, <laughs> send out a notification <laughs> or something, you know, <laughs> so, but, but what happens in between those time periods, that's, that's a little yeah. bit more of a mystery. So this has been super fascinating well, and helpful. 
Yeah, and we always get that from the AppSec side of things. We always like we always talk about those the AAA like authentication, authorization, and auditing, like your logging and actually like giving data to the cert. But it it, it gets short shrift, right? We talk about this in Secure Code Review all the time that people are like, oh, it's just it's just logging, right? Like you don't really need to worry about it. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a serious issue. So so it's great to kind of highlight that. And oh, I mean, we've been yeah, we've been going for over an hour now. Um, like I'm not. We don't. We don't. We want to make sure that we respect your time there. Louis. I'm good. I actually have my morning threat hunt uh, immediately after this, but I, <laughs> I delegated that one before uh, you know starting this call. So I'm all good there. Actually, okay. one last question. Since you've sure. talked a lot about delegation and, and leadership and mentorship, um, any good leadership books that you've read that you would recommend, or any resources? Oh, I haven't read too many of that area. It's always been kind of an organic thing. If I see someone who kind of has the similar interests that I had at the time or is just really passionate about security, I'm always totally willing to help folks um, like really flesh out their experience in that area. And, and like I mentioned before, you never know um, how some, what you teach someone will actually like benefit you later on. They might find you know something you, you never would have noticed or teach you something by merging their experience with what you've taught them. So it's always really valuable. I encourage more, others to do more of that. Nice. Yeah, like finding that that Arabic uh, string yeah. that was important yeah. signature. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Um, cool. Well, where can people find you? Because I don't have a Twitter handle for you. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I tend to do like glass separation between like my previous uh, security research and my professional um, life now. But um, yeah, if anything, they can always shoot me an email. Um, I'm fine with that. Uh, more so than more so than Twitter these days, it can be a bit of a dumpster fire occasionally. So I try oh, to, God. I've, yeah, you there. know what? <laughs> I don't want to get too off topic, but I've 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 stopped. I turned off my notifications. I've stopped paying yeah. attention to Twitter. It's just yeah, so it can be a bit distracting too. So like, I, I like to focus and, and get things done more so than uh, engage in what I see as a fairly pointless discussion on open source tools. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're referring yeah. to. And we won't even we won't even bring it up. So, cool. uh, yeah, no, but um, <clears throat> yeah, so and that's the thing, too, is like there are so many people doing amazing work and it's it's but they're just they're they're quiet and not public. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's sometimes well, this went around just recently, right? Like even on Twitter, somebody I can't remember who it was that, that brought up the fact that the the infosec scene is not necessarily the infosec industry, right? Exactly. Andrew so, Wilson. They're, they're, yeah, that's who it was. It was Andrew. Yeah. He's been on the podcast, right? But yeah. there, there's so much kind of crap that goes on in the scene that's not helpful to our everyday right. as exactly. far as, hey, like the actual work that we're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, someone mentioned like a couple uh, months ago um, that's really not helpful for people to even like check out InfoSec Twitter half of the time because you have, you know, so much of the, the shit posting and memes. And when you're actually looking for like valuable information as someone coming into this as an, as, as a newbie, um, it's really hard to find. So I've started yeah. like pull away from the Twitter side of things and like, you know, spend my time going to meetups and um, talking to folks there more so than, you know, over the, over the Twitter channel at this point. Yeah. So what, what meetups, like where could people actually, like if they're in the Bay area, where could they find you. Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, we'll be at B-Sides uh, SF this year, obviously. Um, I'm in the East Bay, so there are a few East Bay meetups that I'll attend. Like, we have HoodSec, for example. That's a, that's a pretty good one. Um, yeah, just basically any of these smaller meetups that are uh, fairly focused around uh, security. Cool. So okay. I'm posting links to... Cool. Yeah. Trying to make sure this gets out there. Awesome. So sorry, uh, you're not going to Absolute Cali. Any other conferences you think you'll like any AWS or anything like that? Yeah, I'll probably be at Locomoco. I do DEF CON every year uh, just to see what people are up to. It's always a lot of fun. Um, usually avoid uh, some of the lines there and just kick in the suite. But uh, yeah, DEF CON, uh, B-Sides SF, trying to do Locomoco. And I usually do HushCon um, both east and west every year. Well, I'll hit you up for Sweet. DEF CON. I might be at Locomoco Sec. And by the way, Seth, Locomoco Sec, it's a... It's a what security <laughs> security conference that occurs in Hawaii. Can't be that. Oh, sorry, this is the longest running troll, and I'm not sorry because it's hilarious. So, anyways, um, yeah, I might might be at Locomoco, but um, definitely, uh, 
DEFCON, I'm going to hit you up so we can meet in person and say hi yeah. to you. So. Yeah, and I'll be at B-Sides SF, so we'll, we'll chat there and DEFCON for sure, right? Like I'll be doing Hacker Tracker stuff as well. Nice, nice. We'll do an absolute AppSec drinks or something like that. No, man, sounds good to me. Any uh, parting thoughts you'd like to leave people with? Uh, yeah, just be excellent to each other, really. I mean, when I moved out here to the Bay, it was because someone kind of sold me on the city. Um, I visited Noise Bridge, kind of looked around. There was one guy there who was like, you know, hoodie up, working on something. So, you know, I reached out to me. He, and we were actually working on similar projects. Just by like reaching out, being like kind to folks, you know, being inclusive in the industry, you will go a lot further than you will if you're, you know, kind of being cagey and uh, anti. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, cool. yeah, definitely. Like <clears throat> for for the first half of my career, I was like really sort of. Uh, quiet and maybe even mistrusting and, and just like, but yeah, I mean, by being a little bit more, um, like you said, I, I totally agree with that. I, it, it's helped. I think it's helped, uh, just growth, uh, by a lot to just be like more, uh, social and, and what you talked about going to meetups and actually like talking to people face to face has a huge impact. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for your time today. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming on for having me. Awesome. Anything, Seth, before we hop off? No. Uh, any of the previous guests, though, that if they didn't get a T-shirt, please let us know. Uh, reach out to us. Hit us up on – you can find us on Twitter, you know, because it's it's the dumpster fire that we all prefer. Uh, and – or, you know, Slack channel, absoluteaccept.com, uh, you know, or send us an email, like, you know, around the, the episode or whatever it is. We'd love everybody to have one. That's why we get them. And yeah, otherwise we'll see everybody next week. Uh, and yeah, thanks again for your time, Louis. And appreciate yeah. the, the thoughts and the comments. So. And I just sent you an email asking for your, just a reminder about the address and t-shirt size. So we make sure we cool. get you one because otherwise our old brains will forget. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks everyone. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome.